Hi, I'm Matt Kendall. And I'm Dan Reist. Welcome to episode four of The Love Cupboard. Today's episode is on a subject that can cause real problems in a relationship for both parties, and an issue that has unfortunately been a big part of my previous relationship struggles. Navigating and coping with mental health problems can be challenging for the individual that is suffering through those problems, but it can also put a strain on both parties in a relationship. And when things get bad, it can prove to be too much to handle for a significant other and can often lead to resentment, arguments, separation, or in the worst case, divorce. The adverse impacts of poor mental health are even greater among men. Suicide is the biggest cause of death in men under the age of 50, around three quarters of deaths from suicides each year are men. Compared to marriage, being single or being divorced or widowed were associated with depressive symptoms at every age in men, according to a study from Finland. Among men, being single or being divorced or widowed were also associated with lower self-esteem, particularly at the ages of 32, 42 and 52. Men are also far less likely to tell their partner about their mental health problems than women, 52% of respondents to a psych guide survey said they have told their partner about their struggles versus nearly 74% for women. So how can we get men to open up about their mental health struggles? In what ways can poor mental health put a strain on a relationship? And how can men and couples best navigate mental health challenges in a relationship together? And joining us today to tackle these questions is Sarah Fielding, an acclaimed journalist focusing on mental health, gender rights and social issues. Last year, she completed her MSc in Global Mental Health and Society at the University of Edinburgh, which focused on the social, cultural and political aspects of mental health worldwide. She has extensively researched the link between mental health education, especially for young people, and intimate partner violence rates. She's also the co-founder of Empire Coven, a space for highlighting trailblazing women across New York. She has written for The Washington Post, New York Times, Insider, Very Well, The Guardian, and many more. Sarah, welcome to The Love Cupboard. Thanks for having me. And uh, Sarah, obviously with your experience and your insight, this is going to be really um, your bread and butter. Uh, But also we're really keen to discuss how mental health and relationships kind of work together and how they impact on each other and how men in particular are, are... susceptible to letting mental health go to the wayside while the relationship comes forward perhaps a bit more. Um, So a very kind of broad question to start with is how generally do mental health aspects affect relationships? Mental health aspects affect relationships in so many different ways. Of course, when you think about relationships, we're going to be talking mostly about romantic relationships, but When you think about it, I think a lot of people think about how mental health can affect family relationships, how they can affect platonic relationships, and these same issues can so go into the same area for the same struggles for romantic relationships, and it really just depends so drastically on so many different factors, whether their partner or partners have experienced similar things, if there's open communication, what kind of supports are available. So many different aspects determine how much mental health can affect relationships. That's a really good kind of description of it. And I think a lot of it is kind of these environmental factors um, that impact it a lot. is isn't just the basics of being in a relationship, but it's about your job or whether you have any kind of actual mental illnesses, diagnosed mental illnesses, or if there's 
problems with money or addiction or anything related to the relationships itself. One thing that certainly in my experience, is, uh, you know, uh, just for clarity, uh, I'm also on the mental health spectrum, if you can call it a spectrum, um, severely uh, depressed and have anxiety problems. Um, and for all kinds of excitement, I also uh, <laughs> I also have a history of suicidal thoughts and attempts. So it, it's very personal to me, this kind of conversation, because it does come up in, in relationships. And when actually trying to find someone to um to love or to you know to date or whatever is is a, is a thing um and as a guy i don't particularly find mental health difficult to talk about i think that's just part of my personality but i know that a lot of men there's this huge problem with about talking with mental health as well, i was just wondering sarah are men more susceptible do you think to, to hiding their mental health when they're in a relationship yeah, and I just want to say I think it's so important to openly talk about those things. Like I first got into mental health research and writing because of dealing with a panic disorder and having absolutely no idea what that was or why I was having panic attacks and just thinking I was dying and dealing with like low-grade depressive episodes because of that. And I think, like I said before, when people have that experience, it can make them more open to and thinking about it and understanding it. But yeah, going back to your question, I think so much of it is that we live in a society pretty much worldwide. Um, of course, it varies place to place and even like city to city or like um, culture within the city. But we live in a world where men are still told that toughness is the way to go. Emotions shouldn't exist for them. They should be the provider. They should just like shut up and work and... Just like, then they'll come home, food will be ready, they shouldn't like comment, like it's just what it is. And it's crazy because I think so many men and women and just everyone can believe that patriarchal societies are so beneficial for men. And of course, there are some things that would quote unquote benefit them, but so much of it is so destructive to men as well because it just completely stops them from expressing themselves in any way. They, by being in a patriarchal society and having those stigmas associated with discussing any sort of mental health or emotion or anything, it completely limits their ability to be themselves, to express themselves, to say, hey, I'm not feeling great today. I haven't been feeling great for a while. Like, can I talk to you about this, like to their partner or to a friend or say, hey, where would I even go for help for this? And I think that's just, yeah, it's such a detriment to men and to everyone because anyone who interacts with men to not ha be able to have those open communications. I think it's quite difficult, isn't it, when, as you say, there is this pressure, I guess, that's put on men to be kind of brave, stoic, courageous, etc., and tough. And vulnerability isn't necessarily seen or weakness and vulnerability aren't necessarily seen as something that would be attractive traits to the other partner. I wonder if in your research or in any research that you've come across, you've come across men who've said that they find it hard to open up for fear of feeling like they're not good enough for their partner or feeling like they're not going to be seen as attractive anymore. Has, has there any, been any sort of feedback in that respect that you've seen from studies or your own research that suggests that men just want to say something, but they they feel, you know, a bit pared back from being able to do so. Yeah, 100%. And I think what's interesting is so much of it, especially now where we feel 
Um, like we're moving forward a bit and maybe there's some ideas that this isn't as big an issue, but it's still, of course, really is an underlying massive issue. I think a lot of it is subconscious, which is interesting. And I think a lot of times men think, of course, I am not a man speaking for what I've seen. Um, I think a lot of men think that they are being more open or there is more like they're being more expressive. But in reality, there is these like signals in their brain saying, oh, maybe I shouldn't mention that. Maybe like I shouldn't open up about this. Oh, I'm going to seem vulnerable. I'm going to seem weak. And of course, it goes without saying that being vulnerable and expressing yourself is a very strong trait to have. It's very weak to not express yourself and to hold these things in. It's so critical to have the strength and have the power and have the understanding to express how you're feeling and be able to communicate that in a relationship. But yeah, I think it's such a huge issue where men think, okay, if I don't, if I say, oh, I'm feeling like I'm, I've been feeling really depressed or, oh, I had this like suicidal ideation or I had this like horrible intrusive thought, then their partner or a potential partner is going to be like, oh, like, ew, I don't want to date you, which is just, yeah, ridiculous. But of course, everyone lives in these patriarchal societies and they also have this conditioning. So we have the issue on the other side of people also being conditioned to find these traits not as attractive, which is a huge issue. And it's not necessarily always wrong that men feel like that because you have that conditioning and you, I think it's so important for people who aren't men to take the time and really reflect on that the same you would with any sort of issue, whether you realize that you're like any bias you realize that you're having, it's such an important thing to reflect on and be like, okay, am I like counting someone out because of this? Why, why am I doing that? Is because of societal expectations. To what extent do you think things are improving? Um, I say this in the context of, I don't know if any of us in this room are aware of the uh, interview that took place between an English footballer and Gary Neville, where oh, Deli Alley, Deli Alley, yeah. yeah, he, um, it, I mean, I listened to some of it this morning, actually, and it was it was really impressive to see him talk about his struggles and the kind of trauma that he's been through in his life. He was very, very open and particularly for a footballer, I think, to talk about this kind of stuff was was really quite eye opening and in a very frank and honest way. I mean, it seems like, I guess, as a society, we seem to be moving forward to this stage where we're at least getting more comfortable talking about mental health. To what extent do you see that things are changing, that, that men are actually being encouraged to open up and able to open up? Yeah, definitely. I think there is so much change. And I even think of like when I was like in school, like 10 plus years ago, and I think about how society was then and like the ideas that we had. So like obviously American, I have not seen that interview yet, but I'm definitely going to check it out later today. It's very um, profound. It's yeah, very, yeah very I'm very excited. I, it's always, I mean, it's so impactful when people in with a huge platform do something like that, especially someone who is in an industry that like football that is considered more like quote unquote manly and not as um, expressive. And it's so, I think it breaks down such a big wall and it's so important when people do that. I want to side note from that though, and then go back to what we were saying that I think it's really important to remember that celebrities and people um, with these huge platforms 
it doesn't make it easier for them to talk about these things. And I think there's often an expectation of like, you have this huge platform, you must make this change, you must do this, and you must talk about this to make sure that other people are hearing. And it's like, these people are also just as human as everyone else, and they're having to deal with potentially much higher backlash. So I think it's remarkable when people do that, but I also think it shouldn't be a, how could you not, how could you not talk about this sooner? How could you not talk about this more? Because these are people who are dealing with the same struggles and just on a higher scale with more people watching, which is quite terrifying. So I think it's very brave and very remarkable when people do that and take the time. But yeah, going back to this shift, I think it's definitely a big shift. I think it's like any sort of progress where it's like a two steps forward, one steps back situation where it will really feel like we're moving forward in a lot of really good ways and then something will happen or there you'll see some sort of backlash or some sort of comment from someone in power, just any sort of initiative or even like a law that kind of seems to go against that. And I think it's really critical never to take anything for granted. Um, we're seeing that so much in the US, of course, that so many of these rights that people, I don't think ever took necessarily for granted, but just assumed that there would be in some capacity are now being rolled back to such an extent. And I think it's so important with things like this, where you're wanting to continue progress, not to just be like, okay, well, the ball is rolling, so it'll keep rolling. There needs to be continual efforts on this. Um, but I think there's definitely in like Europe, UK, US, like Canada, there has been progress, but I think in so much of the world, there's just still so many issues with this and it's really like, it can't be generalized at all because there are so many areas where like a man can't say anything about their mental health. Um, a woman can't say anything about their mental health. Anyone can't, um, so many issues that we deal with in relationships from that we heard that we don't want to deal with in relationships like abuse can't be discussed. So I think it's really critical to keep that in mind and not just narrow it on one spot. And really, as we continue as a society to work on these things, think about how we can meet each country and each culture where they are instead of trying to just blanket statement and trying to blanket solve the situation because it really varies so much. I mean, even within London, there are so many different wonderful cultures and people and languages and each of these conversations has to happen in different ways with different people based on their experiences. I think that's really right. And and I, I just going back to um, the discussion around the kind of shift that we're having and you mentioned a backlash. And I mean, just from the last week, when we've seen a famous news presenter and his mental health problems, you know, pasted all over the newspapers for effectively just to shout and scream at them. And that's all about, you know, a relationship as well. I mean, that's, um, it's eye opening that that's, that person is so, I will name, you know, Hugh Edwards as the person, but that that person and their relationship troubles has been linked to mental health and they're receiving inpatient care, but there's no thought of empathy. There's no sense that we should be giving this person privacy or the space that they need to to kind of deal with the problems which are obviously there and you know that's certainly been reported. Kind of on on, on the global side, I'm really interested in your kind of the content that you did for your MSC as well. I think you're absolutely right. This kind of westernized view of mental health and mental health awareness is is it can be quite toxic, I think, because we don't necessarily view other cultures and their progress that they're making in their own ways as perhaps as 
you know, as, as decent as our progress or, 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 or valid, if you like. Are there any sort of examples kind of from your research around societies which actually are doing much better than us than and having sort of different sort of social structures or perhaps that their attitudes to mental health um, in relationships are a little bit better so that they can have more companionate, more better relationships? Yeah, I would love to say, yes, so many places are doing great. <laughs> Unfortunately, a lot of places are still struggling. Are you saying us as like the UK, US? Yeah, the West generally. I yeah, think, okay. Yeah. Um, well, I was going to pull an example from the West. Um, one of the experts I spoke to in my research worked on a program in Sweden. And so one of the big things that's happening right now that I think is really important is there's a big push towards healthy relationship curriculum in schools. And it really is looking at instead of being like, okay, we have these people who had these like toxic ideas put in their head from day one. How can we unlearn these it's really looking at okay instead of putting this band-aid on or trying to fix a problem that already exists how can we prevent which of course is so important but also often overlooked just because you want to solve the problem that already exists um but yeah there's a big slew of healthy relationship programming that's going on really worldwide um Again, not as much in countries where there's such an incredible stigma on this, but there are be efforts really being made everywhere. So, so sorry, this is in Sweden where they actually have relationship as part of the yeah, but relationships as part of the curriculum. Yeah, so it's kids. happening quite a few places though. So there's quite a few programs going on in Canada. There's some going on in the U.S. Um, for example, there's one program that happened in the U.S. where instead of sitting down and saying, okay, let's talk about mental health today. Like that's very jarring. A big thing that's being looked at is how can we talk about mental health as the secondary activity? So that way people are doing other things. So there's one that was looking at coaches and those sort of figures in boys' lives and having them play sports and then start to talk about mental health as they were active. And I think that was really interesting um, because even I worked on an article recently um, for very well because they had done a survey with parents, I believe, um, looking at dad's mental health. And it was talking about how so many dads um, struggle with their mental health, don't feel like they can talk to people, want to talk to their kids, still struggle with how to do that, how to create that language and conversation. And one of the um, piece of advice that I got when I was interviewing a mental health professional was to tell the dads to try like running or doing some sort of exercise with a friend, just like invite them like, hey, want to go on an afternoon run today and start talking about it while you're in that motion. I don't know about you guys, but I feel like whenever I really want to talk about something and I'm on a walk with someone instead of just like sitting down and facing them, it feels a bit easier. It feels a little less stressful. So I think that was a really important thing. But yeah, so worldwide, there's a lot of programs that are being done looking at, a lot of it is putting it in um, sexual education. So that's a huge debate as well that's happening where a lot of researchers and mental health professionals want to put this healthy relationship curriculum of some sort into sexual education but at a very young age. And there's, of course, a lot of pushback about that. There's a lot of pushback around sex education of any form, of course. But it's not saying, okay, here's like how mental health would work in like an intimate setting. It's how to 
set boundaries and start to like have like platonic relationships and even like when you're because so many people get into their first relationship of any sort and it's like a teenager and you want to be prepared for that in some sort how do you set those boundaries how do you discuss any mental health conditions you're dealing with or anything of the sort and it's so important to have that curriculum at such a young age and it's such an appropriate thing to have. It's not talking about, we're, you're seven, let me tell you what sex is. Like, it's saying, okay, yeah. here's what boundaries are. Here's what, what a healthy relationship would look like. Here's what your, how people should be treating you. Here's warning signs. Just so many different things. Just about having healthy relationships of all kinds. Yeah, I think that's really important to actually know how to navigate relationships from an early age but also your mental health because I think it's really easy I mean sometimes you don't even realize I mean in my case I didn't even realize I had depression and anxiety until very very late in life I just thought I was different to everyone else same so having that sort of realization would have perhaps in early on would have perhaps enabled me to get the tools mm -hmm. at the beginning to to know how to handle it a bit better than than I did at the time I mean, but, just, just to go, I mean, Matt, were you given any formal relationships education around how to treat people nicely? No. Do you remember? Cause no, I, I can't that I remember. for the life of me think that we had a lesson where, okay, so we're going to, you know, this is what's good to do with people and be nice and kind. Um, all of that kind of education was kind of, I'm going to say ancillary, uh, as if to say it was not taught. It was something you kind of had to learn on the spot through the media or through watching people interact. Yeah, I, I feel like that's such a an overlooked thing. In, in, you know, in the UK, we've there's always a newspaper front page about oh, four year olds are going to be taught how to do this, and you know, there's always a backlash around um, RSE, and um, it, it's certainly important for mental health, I think, because. It is that basic life skill of knowing how to treat people nicely. And so many mental health problems, be it relationships or outside of them, are from childhood experience yeah. and in schools. Yeah, absolutely. But also I think being aware of what your mental health challenges are. Because yeah. I think I remember the, the biggest thing for me was just confusion as to why I felt like this and not really having an explanation for it. And that in some ways making me feel worse. But also when it came to actually navigating relationships, I found that very difficult to then, to know exactly how to express myself and how to express the challenges I had, when to broach them. And I think in my previous relationships, I mean, maybe this isn't very typical of most men, but I think there was a lot of oversharing on my part or a lot, a, a lot of ways in which I would talk about my mental health problems and that would be somewhat burdensome on someone else. You know, obviously men are increasingly, it seems, particularly at celebrities and mainstream culture, being a, at least a bit more comfortable in opening up. But how do we get that that balance right of expressing the vulnerability and the challenges that you face, but not making it so, so much of a problem that it becomes tiring for your partner or becomes a burden? And equally, when do you, you know, when do you bring it up in the dating process? Yeah, I think the biggest issue is it's so dependent, like anything, like if you're telling a partner, like a potential partner that you had kids or that you've been divorced, anything really, it's so 
up to the person and you ha really don't know how the other person's going to react. It's really so, yeah, person to person. So I think the biggest kind of guideline is just being honest, like not hiding it. Like if someone asks you an outright question, of course, if someone starts saying, oh, well, I've dealt with X, Y, and Z and not like, it doesn't mean you necessarily have to take that time to share at that moment, but also not dismissing it and thinking about, oh, I'm going to completely hide this. Like if you want someone to accept and have open conversations with you about what you're dealing with, you need to do the same back. I think with any relationship, time is a very relative thing. You can be in a relationship for a very short time. And it can feel very serious and you can know a lot about each other. You can be in a relationship for a long time and it can still feel very surface level. So I think at the end of the day, keeping honesty and open communication in mind constantly to make sure that you're not hiding who you are, but also respecting your own personal boundary of what you want to share in the moment. Um, it's really finding that balancing act as you go through it. I find it very difficult when I'm having been on a date recently within I would say an hour of being there and talking about movies and films and dogs and traveling uh all the list of things that you talk about um and then suddenly mental health comes up just because it does you know it's just a random conversation you have and then I just you know I feel like the need to be a spokesman for for it i don't know what it is I oh feel, same it's just all like, the time i am the person who is this person and I, i'm in those instances i do feel like i do overshare perhaps a little bit too much about myself but i get the impression that when in the past i've been dating people if there is such a negative backlash and they say oh yeah i mean i dated this person or oh, she was crazy or you know they were you know I was just, that in, i mean i hate to use the term red flag but it, those kind of things are very red flag in the earliest instance, um, because if they can't, if a prospective partner or a you know, partner you've been with for years and years can't at least understand and empathize on a basic level, it's kind of tricky, I think, for it to go forward. I don't feel for that way. <laughs> yeah, I, 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 I do agree with that. I, as I said, just harking back to a point I made a bit earlier on, I think it's interesting because um, I don't know if you've heard of Esther Perel. Who's, mm. Yeah. She's spoken a lot about this kind of the balance, I guess, between loving someone and embracing vulnerability and, and, and really caring for them and kind of the erotic and what, what makes someone desirable. I mean, I've read quite a bit of her stuff and I'm no, I'm no closer to really getting a handle, I don't think, because not because her research isn't good, but because I'm really aware that it's a very difficult balance to strike to kind of keep a spark alive, particularly when things like traits like confidence and, you know, physical attraction, etc., are seen as, as, you know, understandably, you know, enticing qualities. But then vulnerability, kind of acknowledging that someone might be struggling with something or might, might find things difficult and not always be completely fearless and brave. Yeah, I you know, mean, in modern society, that can sort of take the sheen off. I think so. I, I mean, as someone who's queer, I mean, having dated both, uh, well, all genders, um, I, I do find that there is actually a bit of a gap in how um, talking about mental health with guys that I've been on dates with and women who I've been on dates with, uh, there is actually a gap in how it's been reacted to and how 
you can almost, I mean, there's visual um, kind of thing in my mind of being in a date once. And when I did mention that, yes, I had mental health problems and I had been doing this or doing that and whatever, um, I could sort of see the cogs whirring in their head and just say, okay, what does this mean? What does this mean? And it was so, it caused quite a bit of anxiety at the time. And it shouldn't do that. I, I, I get that sense. But kind of just going back to the, the, the gender um, gap, if you like, I mean, Sarah, I don't suppose, do you think there is a kind of gap in how men and women and their mental health is kind of represented or depicted and how it's kind of seen as a problem in itself or is it more of a kind of societal thing? Yeah, and I mean, like Matt said at the beginning, how um, men deal with so many things and so many of these statistics aren't well known. Men deal with eating disorders, men um, deal with suicidal ideation, men deal with everything. But a lot of these things are thought of as just women's issues and really pigeonholed there. And I think no one wants to be the first one in the room to say, actually, me too. Like, I also deal with that. Like, it's very scary. And I think 100% there's a much smaller space for men to have these discussions, which is why I think it's so important when there's the opportunity to be transparent about it. Like you were saying, I think it's really hard when you're on a date to figure out how much to share. I've been the complete same way where I'm like, I have to talk about this all the time because people aren't talking about this. So I need to make sure that I'm talking about this you're all passionate the time. About it at the end of the day, you're, yeah. you, you know, you're, it's, it's your, it's your thing. It's your subject. And you, although it's also something you suffer, quote unquote suffer, you know, it's something you want to share and kind of, be proud of. I mean, yeah, I'm quietly proud of having a mental health problem. But yeah, it's like you said, it's, you need to kind of know what to do. Yeah. So I think it's really about kind of, I feel like I got to the point where I was like over sharing and then it kind of circled back to, okay, what's the right balance for me? Like, it's not on me to be the only spokesperson here. So I need to think about, okay, how can I talk about this, but also just share what I'm comfortable with in the moment, because that's the most important thing in this date by just like going off on a long tangent about mental health. Like if someone starts saying mental health isn't real and we're on a date, I'm going to like, oh, absolutely. Shh, out them out and then <laughs> um, leave. But in a normal conversation, yeah, I think it's about being like, okay, I don't need to say every single statistic I know right now and every single like thing about mental health and make sure this person is hearing every single thing I say, like, how can I talk about those things to an extent and make sure that we're on the same page, but also just share about myself what I want in this moment I'm comfortable with the same way I would any other aspect of me. But yeah, I think with men, it's so much more difficult. Like you guys were saying, I can't like, I get nervous a lot to bring it up on dates. So I can't imagine even more so as a man, the struggle and the fear of someone dismissing it or thinking, okay, like, why are you telling me this? I think so much of it, like across the table, I, I think comes from people being worried about kind of having to take on that burden of sorts with you. And I think that's a lot sometimes for the first date to say, like here like you're saying okay here is what I like live with but a lot of times people hear it as oh this is like what this relationship is going to entail which is really like unfair and not at all what you're saying but I think that's part of the issue and sometimes why it's good to kind of like 
test the water and see what you're comfortable with instead of I think sometimes when you share more than you necessarily are comfortable with but you feel like you should share and then someone reacts poorly it can just be so much more devastating instead of just being like okay what am I actually comfortable sharing right now as I like test the waters to see how this person's gonna react I think with mental health it's very clear very quickly how someone is gonna be and that to me yeah like you said it's a total red flag if someone's not gonna be open about mental health and respectful and be able to even if like I don't need to be with someone who also has like struggles with mental health issues it's just I need to be with someone who's open to understanding them like learning more about it the same way you would with any situation if someone like was dealing with something and I think that's the issue isn't it is to an extent I think with some people it's not that they they don't want to be with someone who has mental health problems I mean you know to a degree all of us we're never confident and 100% okay all of the time you know there's always always situations in life when you're nervous a little bit anxious and and some of that is is good because obviously it preps you for a big occasion or or something you want to tackle um but it seems to me also we don't have uh necessarily the vocabulary the kind of the vernacular the understanding of this is what mental health is and much less even an understanding of the tools that we can use at the individual level, but also between couples so that, you know, if one person has a mental health, uh, mental health challenges, then the partner knows what tools they have at their disposal to, to help them and support them. Or maybe they both have mental health challenges, in which case they can actually sit down and say, this is how we're going to support each other on this journey. It doesn't have to, you know, put unnecessary strain on our relationship because we know how to talk about it. We know the tools that we have. So I think it kind of goes back maybe to what you're saying about the education in terms of how do we talk about mental health? How do we talk about it in the context of relationships? What tools do we have? So in your experience and with your research, have you come across much in the way that, you know, much research or much kind of academic literature that talks about what what we what we have at our disposal to to discuss this and to tackle this? One of the biggest issues is that we see now is that some places are creating mental health education or related education kind of from what they think should be taught instead of what their scientific evidence to teach. Um, kind of like, oh, mental health is becoming like a more talked about thing. Let's teach people what these five things are in this way because it seems to make sense in my head. But a lot of times what makes sense as a method doesn't actually work in reality so I think that's one of the biggest issues there's starting to be more implementation but not necessarily from that scientific backing when talking about mental health it can help a lot to compare it to conditions and diseases that are more well known that we think about these as things that partners often deal with like say for example cancer and how I think that as a society can often be a lot more tangible to think about how you'd have those conversations and there's like support groups for for like loved ones and things of that nature and you talk about you think about how you'd have those conversations but when you think about it say for example with cancer or another disease that is more widely discussed there's not really one way to do it I think 
each person is going to be different. Each situation is different. What might be right to say to someone who has struggled with severe depression their whole life is going to be different than to someone who has just learned they have um, OCD or is now suddenly after a traumatic event dealing with PTSD. It's really different things that you as a partner would want to discuss and talk about. And I think so much of it can be either a wanting to go somewhere to like a couples counseling, say, and like, because couples counseling doesn't have to be for like an issue you're having, like a fight or something. It can be, okay, how can we have these conversations and navigate it and learn these tools together? Of course, it's something you can also learn solo, but I think when you're getting that feedback from your partner as well and what they really want to hear and how it can benefit them, it's really good to have that. And I think such a big thing that's discussed is just not assuming, well, I guess the opposite, assuming that your partner does have good intentions. They might say the wrong thing sometimes or they might just misword something or they might like underreact to something. But for a healthy relationship, that's not going to mean that they have um, any poor intents or anything of that nature. It just means that they're learning and really on both sides, having patience and having the understanding and the open communication instead of reacting with anger, reacting with actually this is like what I would like to hear. This is how that made me feel instead of just saying like, oh, that was wrong. How could you do that? And I think really just keeping that healthy, open communication instead of just saying, nope, that's not what I wanted to hear. You don't understand this. And again, then as if you're a partner who hasn't gone through this or has gone just because you've experienced one mental health condition doesn't mean you understand what it's like to have another one. So I think not assuming that you can put yourself in their shoes and really taking the time to actively listen and also educate yourself on what they're going through. I think this is a a bit of a generalization as well, perhaps, but I think it can also be quite difficult for not only for men to open up, but also when it's their partner that has mental health problems there's kind of a tendency I guess this comes from patriarchal culture perhaps there's kind of a tendency to want to fix things all the time and women want to fix things too yeah well okay (laughs) it works both ways then but but I know know you mean though you've no 100 I 100 percent know what you mean I'm just saying I've dealt with that on my end too (laughs) it's like it's a two-way process in this relationship uh, or marriage or whatever you know yeah you both want to fix things but yeah I think the patriarchal kind of thing is that men knight in shining armor yeah they want to be prince charming and and save the day but actually it's It's not as straightforward as that yeah yeah I think what's so important which I think you're getting at is instead of coming at every situation saying, okay, how can I fix this? Figuring out, is that what the person wants in this situation? Something I do with my friends that I think is really important in relationships as well is sometimes whether I'm saying something or they're saying something, sometimes I'll complain about something and I'll be frustrated. And then I'll say, after I'm not looking for a solution, I'm just looking for a place to just talk about this. Totally, totally agree. And I think that's such an important thing in romantic relationships or sometimes when someone says something to me and they're venting and I say, okay, do you like, should we come up with solutions or do you want to just like talk about this in this moment? And of course there are some things where if that's an ongoing issue and it's really affecting their lives, that's a different situation in a romantic relationship. But overall, I think 
I definitely have a tendency, of course, to be like, okay, someone came to me with this issue. They must want a solution. Let's problem solve. And I think sometimes that can be even more overwhelming and also not really what is going to help in that moment. And I think, again, I'm going to keep emphasizing that open communication of saying, like, a partner comes to you and they're saying, oh, I just, like, had such a miserable week or my depression has gotten worse. Like, saying, do you want us to problem solve right now or do you want to just talk to me about it and that it's really asking what they want instead of assuming that you need to like swoop in with your sword and cape and everything and yeah. rescue them from the burning building that they might feel like they're in exactly and I, I, I genuinely think that there's there's real merit in relationships and especially when dealing with mental health and relationships between couples being able to say I don't have solutions and I don't have answers but I'm still here and actually having that presence and knowing that someone is there without them necessarily being the 100% problem solver. And actually being able to, to admit that, I think, is quite not just brave, but I think really important, I think, in relationships, especially for men to do that and say a lot of things, are, especially with kind of, in my experience, when it's been things like PMS or perhaps having problems with uh, reproductive health or, you know, more gender-based kind of uh, mental health problems. Um, it's saying, being able to say, well, I'm, I'm not a woman and I can't, I can't kind of go down on that level, but I do know that this is a problem and I'm here for you to talk about it and to vent at me. I don't have the answers, but shout at me and scream at me. I think that, well, maybe not scream at me, but like, you know. Yeah, I was like, that's not healthy on their side That's either. not healthy either, but like, you know what I mean? It's that kind of... Yeah, yeah. Um, kind of cooperative relationship where you both know that you're there and that you can put it into this marketplace of problems and it will eventually perhaps get solved or perhaps it won't but at least it's out there as you said open communication I think that's where the boundary setting comes in as well because I think it's important for the person that is suffering to know where the boundaries are for the other person as well so that so that the partner can say I hope you as much as I can, but yeah. it might get to a stage, you know, if this and this happens, I, you're going to have to go and see a counsellor because yeah. I can't, I can't, this, this, you know, there's a limit to what I can do, but, but you need to have that conversation. And yeah, I mean, I, I first learned about boundaries about six months ago. So, I mean, we, we, again, that's something else we're just not. I mean, I like about. cricket, so I, I knew about boundaries, but, um, it's I'm like, also cricket. Oh, okay. yeah, it's like, <laughs> different kind of. I've yet to play cricket, but I'm really interested. In it. Oh, it's great fun. Yeah. I mean, it's not quite as um, intense as mental health and relationships, but it's still great fun. And it's something that actually Sarah said at the at kind of the top of the episode is that, is the fact that we are putting so much weight on celebrities to have these conversations and say, "I am this this powerful, strong person who's going to come out with all these kind of." awareness building motivational things about their problems that they've had when actually they they are going through mental health problems and you know they don't have the answers themselves and they certainly don't have the answers for everyone else's problems they can always donate some money though to the people who oh, do oh completely it's much better to do that <laughs> get some you know therapy uh it's so like joined up in that if you're if you're able to communicate with a partner or a date or whatever or just any kind of relationship that you're having problems and they are able to do the same thing as well. Those boundaries kind of naturally form and you kind of know each yeah. other a bit better anyway to be able to be more open. So much of it just comes down to communication, doesn't it? Unfortunately, it's, yes. <laughs> most things in relationships seem to come down to that. But yeah, I, 
And I guess with mental health, it's even, I mean, communication is a challenge with, in so many different areas, but in mental health, it's, it's even more challenging because you, it's a really vulnerable place to be to say, you know, I, I suffer from depression, I get anxious, my self-esteem isn't what it should be or my confidence isn't what it should be all the time. And particularly in a culture where, you know, Instagram, social media, celebrity culture, where everything is about coming across 100% confident and looking your best, it, it, it can be difficult. You're listening to The Love Cupboard. If you're enjoying what you're listening to, please make sure to subscribe and follow us on our social media on Twitter and Instagram at The Love Cupboard. Welcome back to part two of this episode on mental health. We're joined by Sarah Fielding. Sarah, I just wanted to touch upon the the boundaries thing that I mentioned. Obviously, we're talking now at a time when some evidence has come to light of Jonah Hill expressing certain boundaries with a former partner that I think most people interpreted as not really being boundaries. What's your take on all of that and 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 how we how we define boundaries and how they're imposed yeah i think one of the unexpected negatives of mental health awareness becoming a bigger thing is that a lot of people have co-opted mental health speak like therapy speak and are using it in a toxic way so not really getting like actual mental health education and learning how to overcome toxic actions or things like that instead they're kind of manipulating the conversation and using it to then control their partners yeah in Jonah Hill's case he kept defining boundaries as things that were actually forms of control and that's not a boundary a healthy relationship boundary is something like I have a meeting every day from three to four and I would really appreciate like don't like don't call me during that time because it's an important meeting or things like that where it's like okay this is something I need this is like something I need to do my job or saying I am free today but I'm tired so I don't want to meet up I need to recuperate on my own those are very healthy boundaries those are things that are appropriate to say a healthy boundary is not saying this is what you can't wear this is who you can't see this is what you can't post like at the end of the day a person's life is their own and a partner is supposed to add to it, but it is not like they are not one life and a person has the right to do those things. And someone saying that their boundaries need to be respected by a person limiting all these things that define them are not boundaries that you want in a relationship. They're really not a boundary at all. They're just a control method and a big, big red flag of someone that is manipulating the conversation. It was so shocking when I read it and I just thought, I mean, you've just switched the whole the whole point of what we're talking about. The whole reason people do mental health awareness is to improve lives. And Jonah Hill and so many other people do this, I'm sure. I mean, I've seen uh, things around people using the, the term personal space to kind of identify ownership of things. Like you, you're in my personal space, you are mine to deal with. And it's just... It's just reversing, like an under my roof situation. Exactly, you're un- exactly like that. You're under my roof. You abide by my rules, and it's that kind of 
ownership of the mental health language, which has become so toxic. And I think when it especially relates to relationships, it becomes this question, this patriarchal thing of, of ownership and control. And I wouldn't even say boundaries because it's it's the idea of boundaries has gone. There's long, long gone. He boundaries has no idea. can only be healthy. Yeah, they that is not a boundary. That is control. Exactly, and it, it's just completely reversing the conversation. Mm-hmm. Um, and I suppose the one thing which um, has come up in my in my short sweet life um, is this idea. It was said to me um, by a loved one. Oh, you have severe anxiety and depression you shouldn't be dating and you shouldn't be going to look for love and you shouldn't be trying to put yourself out there because you have this problem i mean i completely don't agree and after years of realizing that that's absolute bollocks uh, <laughs> personally yeah, that's what i think um yeah agree yeah. Uh, yeah i just i, I was, yeah sarah i was just wanting your kind of thoughts on it yeah, uh, the idea that you need to love yourself before you can love anyone else is such crap. Oh, I hate the phrase so much. <laughs> like, it's so, I remember, like, I feel like in my, like, late teens, it was, like, everywhere. It was, like, the motto. Like, and I feel like it came kind of from a good place of being, like, you should, like, be secure in yourself and, like, have confidence and, like, not rely on another person to um give you all that which is totally true a partner is not someone who's supposed to completely save you or make you feel great or fulfill you because it's just not the case it's not how it's going to be but you we're all going to be work in progresses for our entire lives and someone who deals with depression or anxiety or anything like I'm going to have a panic disorder my entire life I'm going to go to therapy I'm going to take my medication I'm gonna I'm going to do coping mechanisms and that's stuff that's gonna go on my whole life some things may make it worse some things may make it better we'll have ups and downs but it's not something that's just gonna one day be like oh it's gone I'm all good brain fine flowers and sunshine (laughs) there are levels and I think the most important thing is checking in with yourself but also checking in with people who really care about you and aren't going to say things like that because It's easy to think, oh, well, I'm not in a place. Oh, no one's going to love me. I shouldn't be out there. And I think that's when trusted loved ones and um, potentially a mental health professional can help you through that and say, well, why do you think that? What do you like? Let's talk about what you actually like have to give the world and like what you want from it. Your motivation is what's most important when you're dating. If you're in a place where all your energy is currently going towards surviving basically and dealing with very severe bouts of depression you might say hey I'm using all my energy for this I don't really have any energy left to put into doing anything than potentially seeing people I trust and care about and going out in the world then yeah you might want to like decide yourself that you don't want to date but that's your personal decision and that's looking at your own energy levels, but you might just be like, oh, well, I've been depressed for a long time, so I just think it's not worth me going out there. Like, no one's going to want me. I'm not, like, I can't really give anything back. But you do realize that you have, like, extra capacity and you do want that in your life, then I think it's great to go out there. I think the most important thing, like I said, is not to go into it 
in any situation of any person, whether they have a mental health condition or not, to think, okay, well, I'm going to find this person, and then everything is going to be sunshine and rainbows. Yeah, I if, think that's yeah. Uh, that's one of the that's one of two things I think which drives this whole conversation about loving yourself before loving another. Um, even saying it gives me shivers. Um, it's just it. I see where it came from, but it just went to such a bad place. Exactly. It's it's one of those um, mental health slogans that is used and banded around like it's okay to not to be okay you just, can just live laugh love every day it just it's live laugh, just put place it on your walls and it's fine I, I think i think the other half of, of of it is one being that it's the idea that relationships are the be all and end all for mental health and that they will solve your life's problems because you're with someone who can help you and will love you and appreciate you and blah 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 that's obviously not the case and people who are in relationships still suffer with mental health problems i think the other half of it is this ignorance around what mental health is and the fact that yes you may have depression anxiety you're not going to be exhibiting the symptoms 24 7 you may be different in different situations and actually you don't know if dating at the same time is going to be helpful for you and i think opening yourself up to those kinds of opportunities is obviously a personal choice but it's not necessarily a bad thing just i just think it is one of those awful old-fashioned phrases that is needs to be put to death <laughs> yeah. I used to before every date I had have basically in a panic attack because it was just so terrifying to me the idea of like going out and meeting someone not because I had to like share about my mental health situation or anything it just was such a like terrifying thing to me and I just and so I would like limit me and I wouldn't necessarily want to do it and then I just kind of got to the point where I was like gonna exposure therapy myself and just keep keep going and it really like it's just kind of knowing and checking in with yourself in these situations. But I don't know. Of cheesy phrases, one of my favorite ones that I think came from the lovely Tumblr was something about how it's a relationship is not 50-50. Some days someone's going to give 90 and the other person's going to give 10. And other days the other person's going to give 90 and then they'll give 10. And it's really about being like, okay, I don't need to give my all every day. I'm going to get support and I'm going to give support back. And it's, yeah, just really finding that balance and understanding that if you want a relationship and you feel like you have the capacity and the ability to be there for someone and support them in the ways you want to be supported, then it's great. It seems like the crucial things are, and, and, we've mentioned it quite a few times, a, a, a balance, which is quite quite hard to determine, I suppose. How much do you share? How much do you say uh, to, to your partner? And how much do you, to what extent do you look for assistance elsewhere, whether it's from friends, family members, or uh, or a professional? But I think, would you agree that it's also, it seems to me that normalizing therapy is, a, goes a, a long way towards making this whole process a lot easier because just having that person that you can speak to that is there specifically just to listen to you will then enable you to have the tools to go back to your partner and say I'm dealing with this issue you know you can support me in this way these this is the advice I've received but but it's so hard particularly for men I think when you know even just diagnosing depression or anxiety whatever it might be is so difficult and then feeling comfortable enough to seek out help 
it's it just seems really challenging even if you're a man who feels the weight and the burden of poor mental health it does sort of feel like there's not many outlets you can go to because you think well if i tell my partner they might not like it or they might be turned off if i tell my friends you know you kind of have to pick and choose who you can speak to sometimes so it feels like or at least it has in my experience in the past it felt like there was no one I could really talk to about this who would understand. And in time, obviously, I found that friends also have the same problems and I've been to therapy. And so I have now outlets where I can really talk about things. But for a really long time, it felt like there was just no one out there that I could speak to. I, I suppose you, you kind of just explained your answer to your question in saying that really yes we do need to obviously open up therapy for men to be able to go and talk about their feelings and the one crucial thing is I'd say is independence from your life and having a it doesn't have to even be a therapist or a friend it can just be just someone to talk to because having the, an independence from your group from your family from your friends from your loved one they're going to provide a a more balanced, yeah, impartial view on what your. I mean, it certainly helps if they have a medical uh, background so that they can explain some of the things you're feeling and discuss the kind of mental health diagnoses and aspects that we're talking about. But I do feel that independence from your situation is just so crucial because I, I, I mean, in the past when I've tried to go to someone and it's a friend, they have often been like. Oh, I, I don't, I don't really, I don't know how to, <laughs> don't really know how to react. Um, but then another person will be like, amazing, fantastic. Uh, let's talk about it more. It's so difficult to gauge. Yeah, I think a lot of it comes from picking and choosing, and then learning who is the right people in your life. Also, with therapy, a big issue is that it's not very accessible to a lot of people. There is that, yeah. <laughs> and that's really messed up. Everyone should be able to access therapy. And the same way they can access, should be able to access any sort of medical help. But I think there's also so many different like support groups that exist and more and more are coming up. And there's ones that are like centered around men and there should be even more. And just like creating a safe space I also think going off what you guys are saying, I think it's you don't have to have a diagnosis to say that you are dealing with mental health issues. Of course, a diagnosis can be so helpful. Like when I was diagnosed with a panic disorder, it felt like my life had changed. Like I had so much clarity. But you also necessarily you can deal with mental health issues without having a specific condition. Like we said earlier, you can have days that feel like you're dealing with depression. You can have bouts of like feelings of anxiety and it doesn't mean that you necessarily fall into one category and I think as a society society we've gone a little too far with saying that it's either that you must like fit into a diagnosis and it's not always going to be the case and it's okay to still you're not like necessarily a fraud you shouldn't false classify yourself but you're not a fraud to say okay I'm having these feelings like these are still valid even though I haven't gone to a psychiatrist and gotten a diagnosis yeah, I I completely agree. I think that that is a a crucial part of the whole mental health question and the whole awareness building question is that it needs to be normalised as just a thing to look out for and look after, much in the way that your physical health is looked after. 
you know, you take paracetamol, you have a cold. If you are feeling a bit low and you maybe you're feeling a bit anxious about going somewhere, talk to someone and, you know, or do something that makes you feel, you know, recovered and well from it. Yeah. Um, Dance party in your room. Yeah, absolutely. Um, always. <laughs> <laughs> and um, so as someone who has been through the mill of the NHS therapy windmill of life that <laughs> is that um psychiatrist psychologist thing you know it took months and months even years and we're talking about how accessible it is obviously it's not accessible it's in the uk and in the us as well i imagine very expensive to get therapists it's like hundreds of dollars an hour yeah and most so many different places won't cover it you have deductibles you have co-pays all the time a lot of therapists are leaving insurance because many insurance providers require you to do a diagnosis, even if it mis might not be the case in order to continue treatment. Well, that to me doesn't sound healthy. Uh, <laughs> and in the UK, I don't know, like in the recent past when I've had some problems um, in the last year or two, I've kind of toyed with the idea of going back to therapy. I did a whole load of CBT, which was useless, um, and other types of therapy, and it was from the NHS and it was helpful um, but recently I thought maybe I'll get a private therapist just someone to talk to talk about some problems you know I was having some things around my my body confidence and um, relationships and things like that maybe I'll get a private therapist and quite honestly the amount of therapists that are out there is extraordinary there are so many therapists but they cost a lot of money <laughs> and it just yeah. feels like you are put into this this hurricane of well who's going to be good who, who's going to give me what I need because they all say the same thing I mean they say this person says they specialize in generalized anxiety disorder is that the same as anxiety is that the same as depression it's just I don't know and, and that just makes it even even harder I guess yeah. what, what we're talking about in terms of men being aware of their mental health challenges and then going out and see being able to seek help and to know who to contact it's just it's so complex and unless you're really determined and you're really kind of self-aware of what your issues are and you really want to get them fixed, I mean, it's it's really hard to to find the right person to speak to and to be comfortable speaking to that person. So, Yeah, I think so much of um, treating your mental health, we encounter the impossible task and something that feels so simple, like it should be so simple is feels next to impossible. Um, I'd like to share a little of my experience because I have a private therapist that I found when I was originally in Edinburgh um, just because I'd gone to a therapist in the U.S. for quite some time, first through school, which was free, but then having to pay out of pocket. And I went to one when I was at University of Eddie for a little time, but then they had a limit on how many times you could go. So, which we didn't have in the US. That was the only weird thing that we actually didn't have that in mind. Mm, I had a limit on mine at Portsmouth. It was like 10 sessions and then you're out. My, yeah, uh, at Edinburgh That's quite common, I think. Four to yeah. six, yeah. At my school, you could do unlimited for undergrad, but here, no. But like I said, yeah, it's definitely very, it's still quite expensive here to do private. It's definitely cheaper which is insane than the u.s by quite a bit but still yeah a lot but i used the site bacp which i found to be very helpful um and they have a range of therapists and you can narrow down by the type that you are looking for and 
therapist might not be that happy that I say this, but a lot of them will do a free 10-minute call with you once you've contacted them. And I found that really helpful to figure out who was the right fit for me. I did end up going with a therapist that wasn't the right fit at first. And I think just remind yourself that's okay. Not everyone will be the right fit. And then I did find someone who I've been with now for over a year who is great. But I, and also lots of therapists do sliding scales and student discounts to keep in mind. Um, You might find that CBT is the right fit for you. You might find that a different type of therapy is the right fit for you. It's really just, yeah, looking into that and just having honest conversations with different therapists. That level of intimacy with a with a, a therapist um, and knowing each other quite well and them knowing your problems and having a bit of, bit of your background is, is quite good. Um, I also quite value switching it up sometimes. If after a year or so, uh, where I've had a therapist in the past, not that they're ter- not that they're a bad therapist, but actually having a fresh pair of eyes on particular issues, if they, you know, looking at something specific, I had a lot of um, therapy for things around relationships and um, self-image and, and, and things like that. So having people to go through was was really helpful because they had different perspectives and different kind of life lessons, if you like. Just sort of touching on the. I suppose it is a coping mechanism therapy. It's one of the more formal forms of coping mechanisms. On the relationship side, if you are kind of in a relationship and there are early signs perhaps that things are deteriorating, your mental health is getting bad and the relationship is kind of, you're, you're worried that it's making you feel bad and it's generally making your mental health worse. The question I have is how do we accept that it's okay to leave (laughs) and like accept that it's okay to say well this is not working for me because it's if I go any further it's gonna really hit me hard or how do we know when it's time to leave and time to end it because of those reasons it's so hard I mean it's the same (laughs) way as any ending any relationship for any number of reasons and coming to acceptance I think if you can talk to people and get that outside experience, like friends and stuff, great. It's so much harder when you're in a situation. I would recommend trying to like picture your situation from an outside perspective, kind of think of it through a different person's eyes. Again, hard. But remember that at the end of the day, relationships are only meant to add to your life. They are not your life. They are not the reason that you are worthwhile or exist or anything. And it's really okay to leave one if it's not benefiting you. And it's still really okay to leave one even if that person has supported you through mental health concerns in the past. You don't, like, you can be grateful and you might feel guilty about leaving, but at the end of the day, you still have to do what's best for you. Try not to do it in a crude manner unless they really deserve it, but still (laughs) try to be nice. Um, But at the end of the day, you are the person who's looking out for you in this world and you need to do what is best for you. We have to do our last question, I'm afraid. Um, It's a nice broad question and I feel like we should end on a a lifted note by asking Sarah, what does happiness look like in a relationship, in your view? Um, Personally, I think happiness in a relationship is feeling like you can completely be yourself and feel completely safe in a relationship when you're with that partner. 
I think that feeling happy in a relationship really depends person to person. It might, for some people, be feeling like they have someone they can go to the movies with every Friday. It might, for other people, be really spending most of their time with that person and being able to learn from them and be able to do all these different things. It's really just about, I think, at its core, happiness in a relationship is feeling safe, feeling content, feeling like your life is better because you're in this relationship and you are your true self and you are respected and cared for and can talk openly about your mental health. <laughs> That's great. Matt, do you have any happiness thoughts? Do you have any happy thoughts, Matt? <laughs> happy thoughts? Um, I mean, I think I broadly agree with that. Yeah. I think... I, I don't know exactly where I stand on happiness. It seems It seems to be sort of quite elusive maybe contentment is the better word I don't know maybe that is happiness though feeling but maybe that is happiness comfortable I think yeah once you get to a stage where you feel like you are understood and you understand your partner and you can navigate things in a way where you feel like you can bring things up easily and it's not going to be a rupture to the relationship I think because happiness in a relationship can be quite easy sometimes in terms of going to nice restaurants and and having lots of fun and and you know telling each other jokes and whatever and that's that's the easy stuff but it's it's more telling can you be comfortable dealing with the the harder stuff and having those harder conversations and it's not necessarily the disagreement or the hard conversations themselves but actually feeling comfortable enough to broach them and then being able to work through them yeah having a mix of surface level and deep content yeah 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 and i'd agree with um both of you support sarah saying that it does vary from person to person because i mean we haven't mentioned dating app once uh, in this episode which i think is a record um (laughs) on dating apps you'll you'll often see things which say what is a good relationship what i'm looking for in a relationship which you would assume which means it's a good one quite often it will be things like yeah really good sex they'll go traveling and they like horses and skiing and that to me is as you said surface level contentment but it's also material contentment you're materialistically happy because you have these things that surround your relationship as opposed to two people or more people than just you know enjoying each other's company and i think that for me being happy in a relationship is actually feeling that I can be myself and not feeling that I have to hide anything or cover any bad parts or kind of mask any good parts. Yeah, I, I completely agree with that and I hope that we all have very happy thoughts as a result. <laughs> Who can you sit in silence with while reading a book and still feel happy and content? Oh, the dream. <laughs> yeah. Absolute dream. Yeah. So thank you so much to... Uh, Sarah Fielding, today's guest. Um, It's been a really interesting and insightful conversation we've had about mental health generally, but also mental health and relationships. In the description of today's episode, uh, we will be putting all of the information around Samaritans and BACP that was mentioned by Sarah earlier. Um, But I do want to thank Sarah. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. Not at all. Thank you, Sarah. Uh, You've been listening to The Love Cupboard. Uh, I'm Dan Reist. And I'm Matt Kendall. Thank you very much.
Thanks for listening. Make sure to subscribe and you can get us wherever you get your podcasts. Make sure to follow us on our social medias. Social medias? <laughs> What's going on? <laughs> Am I drunk? <laughs>